Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Open there with me. Psalm 12. We're going to read the entire thing. It's a short psalm. We're going to read the entire passage together to give us some context, and we'll go back and make some, some comments before we read it. Uh, just a reminder uh, that this journey through the Psalms is about a wonderful book of the Bible. And I've given you a summary statement there that comes from Kendall Easley that reminds us of what the Psalms are all about. Here is the summary statement. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So, when you study the Psalms, that's what you ought to walk away with, that God is the true and glorious King And he's worthy of your worship, worthy of your praise, worthy of your trust, worthy of your confidence, no matter what life brings. And that's what the Psalms encourage us to to focus on. And so that's certainly true of Psalm 12. And and Psalm 12 is really about being surrounded by evil. Because look what it says there, verse 1, it says, To the choir master according to the Shemineth, which is a musical term probably, a psalm of David. So David wrote this to to be sung in corporate worship. And verse 1 says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Now, we can relate to that, can we? Where, listen, so we look around at our culture, where have all the godly folks gone? Hard to find anybody that's making much sense on an, the national scene these days, right? When you look at entertainment, when you look at media, when you look at politics, when you look at athletics, no matter where you look, where have the godly gone? Where are they? They're they're hard to find. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl. As vileness is exalted among the children of man. Let's pray together. Father, we just pause to recognize once again our need for you. We believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And Lord, we ask that you would deliver us from just going through the motions of Bible study. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to the edge of our seats that we would be hungry for your word, hungry for truth, and that you would work in such a way through your word, by your spirit, that we would be nourished with the Bible. And that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, that we would be inspired. Lord, we want to be changed and we want to be obedient. Your word says that you're looking for people that are more than just hearers of the word. They are doers of the word. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts so that we would desire to be doers of the word so that we can live in a way that honors and glorifies your great name. And so in these moments, uh, Father, would you move with power? May Jesus Christ be exalted because he's the only hope for the world and and, and we want his name to be lifted up in our midst. Holy Spirit of God, would you 
anoint me as I teach, and would you anoint the hearer in these, in these times. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now notice how Psalm 12 begins. Notice the little title, Surrounded by Evil. And it comes from the first verse. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. So David feels like he is surrounded by evil, and he just can't find many godly folks to speak encouragement and truth into his life. Now, again with David, we don't know exactly what period of his life this refers to. Now, some of the Psalms in the little uh, in, in the little letters, the small letters right before the first verse, it tells us the context. It tells us the historical background of the psalm. We'll see some of those as we work our way through. But a lot of the psalms of David, he doesn't give us that context. So we don't know exactly what period in David's life he is feeling surrounded and feeling lonely and feeling like there's no one godly to turn to. Uh, but there are many times in his life this could have been the case. I mean, he had enemies throughout his entire life. And, and so he's having a moment where he says, where has the godly person gone? Where are the faithful folks? It seems like everywhere I turn, there is ungodliness. J.M. Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, great Presbyterian pastor of the late 1900s, says this, As we begin this psalm, we find that the psalmist feels isolated like Elijah in the desert, where he fled after his great victory on Mount Carmel. And he said, Elijah, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Remember Elijah, great victory, Mount Carmel, had this showdown with the prophets of Baal, and they prayed to their God, nothing happened because Baal's a false god. And then Elijah prayed to his God, and the fire fell, consumed the altar, and the people that are viewing this event, they fall down on their knees and say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So Elijah had a front row seat to see the reality and the power of the one true God. And just, just, just shortly thereafter, he is running for his life scared of this evil woman named Jezebel. And Elijah felt all alone. That's what Boyce is making mention of here. And then he says, Elijah was mistaken, of course. And David probably was too. God told Elijah that there were yet 7,000 who had not bowed down to Baal. Still, that was only a small remnant, and there are times when those who love God and want to be faithful to Him really do feel alone. Let me read that again. There are times when those who love God and want to be faithful to Him really do feel alone. And then Boyce asked this question, Haven't you felt that way at times? Perhaps you were trying to do the right thing at work, and everyone ignored you because you did, they did not want to be judged by your standards. Maybe you're the only one that's not cheating on the expense report, right? And, and the rest of your coworkers don't understand that because that's how they're operating. And, 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 and they, they, you feel isolated because they want to stay at arm's length from you. You may have felt isolated at home or at school. People in government say they often feel that the, the godly are no more and that the faithful have vanished from among men. That's what Boyce says. And so we can identify with David because there are times in our lives when we try to do the right thing and it's hard to find other folks trying to do the right thing, there are times when we are seeking to live for the glory of God and no one else is. There are times when it seems like the, the godly person has vanished. Certainly, we can identify with what's going on in our nation today as we are watching a rapidly, rapidly deteriorating culture. 
when, well, I'll, I'll save some of that for later, but, but our culture is, is disintegrating, morally speaking, and it's happening so fast, it's, it's just almost beyond comprehension. And we ask, where are the godly folks? Where are the, where are the folks speaking truth? Where are the folks speaking common sense? Where are the, the folks that are standing for the right thing? So we can identify with David feeling surrounded by evil. We can identify with David's loneliness. So keeping that in mind, I want to walk you through four parts of this psalm. Four parts of this psalm that help us to, again, make a connection with David's feelings in this psalm. As I was studying it, I was like, boy, this is how I feel. Because I'd be honest with you, as I look around at our nation, I I feel discouraged. Uh, There are times when waves of fear uh, grip my heart. Not so much for me, but when I think about my kids, you know, my grandkids, uh, when we can't even say a boy's a boy and a girl's a girl anymore. I mean, think about how twisted things are going to be uh, as, as our kids get older. And so there are times I think, what in the world is going, what's it going to be like, you know, 10 years from now, five years from now, next year? I mean, who knows? Uh, and, 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 and so I can identify really uh, with David's feelings in this psalm. So let's look at these four headings to kind of understand the psalm and, and make that connection with David. First of all, we see the evil speech of a decaying society. The evil speech of a decaying society. And David focuses in on this psalm on one aspect of evil. He focuses in, the entire psalm really is about words, about speech. And he's focusing in on the ungodly speech of a decaying society. And so let me just give you different types of speech that we see in this psalm and see in our land that are evil. First of all, there's empty talk. Empty talk. Vain, meaningless, empty talk. Look what it says there in verse 2. He said the godly one's gone, faithful had vanished. Verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. And that word lies in the Hebrew is literally, or more accurately, the term emptiness. It's a term which, of course, includes falsehood because falsehood is empty speech because what you say does not correspond with any kind of reality. Uh, But it also speaks of insincere and irresponsible speech, which cheapens and corrodes uh, cheapens and corrodes human speech. And so he's saying, everywhere I look, there's empty, vain speech. It's deceptive. It is uh, insincere. Uh, it is just empty of meaning, empty of truth, empty of righteousness. And everywhere David looks, he sees empty talk. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, you, you'll probably get tired of me asking this question tonight, but do you see empty talk anywhere in our nation? Everywhere, right? Everywhere. I mean, the things that are going on right now are, are just really uh, blowing my mind. Empty talk. Secondly, not only do we see empty talk, uh, David points out there's smooth talk among the evil. Smooth talk. Look what it says in verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips. Isn't that interesting? Flattering lips. People telling you, what they think you want to hear so that they can manipulate you to do what they want you to do. Flattering lips. The Bible in Proverbs warns us against flattering speech and against being flattered by flattering speech. And David says, everywhere I look, there's this smooth talk. People that are trying to say things to win you over, 
so they can manipulate you to get you to do what you, they want you to do. Smooth talk uh, is everywhere is what David's saying. And again, as we look at our culture, we see smooth talk. People saying things, leading people astray, but doing it in a very smooth, flattering way. Third, uh, David points out double talk. Double talk. Look what it says in verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. A double heart they speak. Now that phrase literally in the Hebrew is they speak with a heart and a heart. A heart and a heart. It's, it's the Hebrew idiom for saying people are speaking out of both sides of their mouth. You know what that means, right? I mean, they're saying one thing, but th- their actions are totally different than what they're saying. They're, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They're speaking with two hearts, right? The, the, what they're saying does not correspond with truth. It does not correspond with their actions. It does not correspond with reality. And so he's saying here, I see double talk everywhere that I look. People trying to lead others astray with two hearts. You know, God wants us to have one heart, a wholehearted uh, love for him, not a divided heart, a, a, a heart that is focused on him. And then David points out there's big talk, boasting, empty talk and smooth talk and double talk and big talk. Look what it says in verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. So David here is praying for God's judgment. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, great Boasts. He's speaking here of big talk, blustering talk, um, proud words. I like what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He says, as for these proud words, this describes boastful speech that impresses people by its oratory and vocabulary. Um, this kind of speech is motivated by pride, Wiersbe says, and is used by people who think they're in control and will never need to answer to anybody, including the Lord. Their lips are their own, and they can speak just as they please. And so, if you look around at our culture, you see big talk, boastful talk, blustering talk, people who have no sense of accountability to God. And then David points out there's irresponsible talk. Look at what it says in verse 4. Those who say, asking God to judge these people of evil speech, says, those who say... With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? We don't have to give an account to anybody. We can say what we want to say. Irresponsible talk. And yet, one day, we will stand before God and people will give an account for every word they spoke. That's what the Bible says. And so, uh, he's speaking of irresponsible talk. People that have no sense of accountability Uh, when it comes to their speech. And so we see here that David hones in on the evil speech of a decaying society. One of the markers of a rapidly deteriorating culture is the speech. Just, Just turn on the TV and listen. And you will hear on every channel, I don't care what news channel you watch, you'll hear on every channel these kinds of things. Flattering speech, smooth speech, boastful speech, misleading speech, empty speech, irresponsible speech. You will see these things everywhere you 
turn. And so the evil speech of a decaying society is something David is noticing. And he feels surrounded by evil because of all of the evil speech. By the way, you know the tongue can do a lot of damage, don't you? The, you know, we learned growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, that's a lie. That's not a good thing to teach your kids. Words can do lots of damage. As a matter of fact, over in James, uh, the Bible says uh, that, James 3, it says that the tongue it can be compared to two things. Deadly poison and a raging forest fire. What does poison and a forest fire, ha- what do they have in common? Destruction. Right, The tongue can destroy. Now, he also says, hey, the tongue can be used to bless, uh, but it's small and it's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a rudder. It can turn uh, the direction of your life by what comes out of your mouth. And so we need to understand that speech can be destructive. And David sees this everywhere that he turns. And so we see the evil speech of a decaying society. Secondly, we see the ungodly oppression of a decaying society. The ungodly oppression of a decaying society. Look what it says in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. Notice what stirs God to action. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But notice what stirs God to action. It is people that are being taken advantage of. Those who cannot fight for themselves being overrun by the evil ones, overrun by a decaying culture, overrun by a deteriorating society. And I want you to understand this. This is so important here. If you want to know what makes God mad, and this is, this is supported all the way throughout the Bible, what makes God mad is when people who cannot fight for themselves are mistreated. That makes God angry. It really does. And so when you look at different segments of society, and you look what's happening in our culture, if you ever see a group of people that are being, being mistreated for whatever reason, they're being oppressed by the evil and, and, and plundered by the, the, the ungodly in our culture, that, that makes God angry. We always need to be very careful about, about taking advantage of folks because God doesn't like that at all. And so we see that in our culture today, that, that there's this ungodly oppression in a decaying society. And hey, I mentioned pro-life a little bit earlier. What uh, demographic is more unable to speak for themselves than a baby in a mother's womb? Right? I mean, they're, they're, they just have no, no shot at standing for themselves, standing for their rights and their personhood. They're in their mother's womb, totally uh, unable to fight for themselves. What... what must God's perspective be as he looks down at our nation that is not only murdering babies, but making it easier and easier to do. More and more convenient, more and more legal, more and more accepted. It's dumbfounding what's happening in our culture. And for people to think that God turns a blind eye or a deaf ear to that is ludicrous. God gets angry when those who cannot fight for themselves are oppressed and plundered. It makes God mad. And, and I believe that maybe part of what's happening in our culture today is we are experiencing the, the judgment of God. That because of our iniquity, because of our sin and rebellion against Him, because of issues like this, God has just... He just 
you know, there's two ways to speak of God's wrath. One is his act of wrath where he sends hail and fire and brimstone, right? I don't see that yet. But there's another way that God uh, judges or God sends wrath. It's called the passive wrath of God. And that just means God takes his hand off. Which, by the way, is terrifying to me. That God would just take his hand off, right? And, 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 and perhaps what we are experiencing now is God just taking his hand off. And that's why we see this acceleration of deterioration in our culture. So what do Christians do? Well, we repent, we, we, we pray, we, we seek to be salt and light, uh, we pray for revival and awakening, uh, but let's don't fool ourselves that, uh, uh, that America has got a great record when it comes to morality. It doesn't. It doesn't. We are rebelling against God. Now, having said all that, let me just come back around and say this. Uh, it's very likely that we have people that are in the life of our church, that are here on Sunday mornings or here on Wednesday nights that we minister to, and it's very likely that there are people here who have had an abortion. Very likely. And, 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 and you're living under maybe perhaps the shame or the, the guilt or the regret that, that comes with that. And listen to me, I, I want us to be a church that is uh, pro-life, there's no question where we stand on that. We want to stand for the unborn, but we also want to point people to the grace of God and, and, and the forgiveness of God. And so if, if that's true in your life or someone in your family or someone that you know, we want you to know they're welcome at Longview Point. We want folks here. We want to help them heal. We want to walk with them through the healing process and pray and, and, and help and all of that. Uh, so we believe that abortion is wrong. Uh, we believe that it is a, a really a, a heinous evil in our day. But we also want to pick people up that were maybe deceived or made a decision in desperation. Uh, and we want them to know or give them some bad counsel or bad advice. We want them to know, hey, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for all of our sins. And if you'll embrace him, he will give you healing and hope and forgiveness and cleansing and transformation. And one thing I love about grace is God loves to come along and pick broken sinners up and put them back on their feet. Amen? And so we we got to be careful that we're a church that that stands for the right thing, but also as we preach truth, we extend grace. We don't, we don't approve of, of, of things, but we point people to Jesus who can transform lives broken by sin. Amen? So I want to say that too, so uh, I feel better saying that. Um, but, but, but notice here uh, the, 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 the weak that are being oppressed, the, the ungodly oppression of a decaying society. Number three, we say, oh, by the way, by the way, before I get off the pro-life thing, just so you know, I'm a single-issue voter. I Forget political parties and candidates. My number one issue is, how can we save the most babies? Because I believe it is the, I believe it is the consequential moral issue of our day. And what is disheartening to me is no one in any party is talking about it anymore. We've punted that issue, and we're not talking about it anymore. And, and listen to me. The church is not to get tied up with political parties. The church, listen to me, is the conscience of the nation. And when we get ourselves too tied into political parties or affiliations or candidates, we lose our moral voice. So our job is to speak as the conscience of the nation and say, hey, listen, this is a huge issue. It's wrong. And, and we, it needs to be changed. It needs to be brought to an end in our land. And so 
just, just a kind of a quick word, what, what is disheartening to me in the whole political process is no one's really talking about it anymore. They may give you some little pithy statement about you know, their pro-life or whatever, but no one's talking about it anymore. No one's doing anything for the unborn. No one's fighting for them in our nation on, 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 on any level. In the na- well, I mean, there's some, but, but for the most part, on the national scene, there are not many folks fighting for the unborn, and I think that is tragic. I really do. So I just wanted to say that before I moved on. So the ungodly oppression of a decaying society. Number three, the glamour of evil in a decaying society. By the way, I've had some pushback. I'll get on to that in a minute. Uh, I've had some pushback in my life when I've talked about being a single-issue voter. And, um, and uh, people say, well, there are other issues out there, and I'm fully aware of that. But I do believe that someone who, who is for um, the murder of babies, protecting the murder of babies in their mother's womb, is disqualified to, to be in public office. And you say, well... Um, that's not right. You shouldn't be a single-issue voter. Everyone in this room is a single-issue voter. For example, if there was a candidate and you know they tortured babies, would you vote for them? You know what? You just became a single-issue voter. Something so heinous that you say, I can never vote for them. Well, to me, not defending the unborn is that heinous. It, it disqualifies them from public service. And so, okay, I feel better. Okay, now, now let's go to number three. There's the glamorization of evil in a decaying society. The glamorization of evil in a decaying society. Look what it says in verse eight. On every side, David says, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted. It's celebrated. It it is championed uh, among the children of man. So not only, listen to me, does David see people doing bad stuff, he sees the bad stuff that they're doing being celebrated in the culture. Does that sound familiar? Where everything that used to be right is now called wrong, everything that used to be wrong is now called right? And you say, wait, how close to home does this stuff hit? Well, did you know this past weekend there was an LGBT pride parade in Oxford, Mississippi? Did you know that? I mean, it's real close to home. That's our back doorstep, right? Where, where, where these things are being celebrated in our culture as, as good behavior, decent behavior, right behavior, even though it flies in the face of what the Bible says. And, and, and listen to me. What, what needs to happen in our culture is Christians have to have the backbone to say, no, this is what the Bible says. That is wrong. It'll destroy your life. It's not what's best for your life. It will lead you to a path that ends in misery and destruction and separation from God. Jesus has spoken to this. The Bible speaks to this. There is a better way. His way is the better way. And we've got to have the courage to say that in our culture. Because vileness is being exalted. It's being celebrated in our culture. We've got to learn to speak clearly on these issues. And let me just say this, and I, 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 you know, I've got to the point now, I'm going to just be as clear as I can because there's so much confusion in our culture. So let me say this again. Here's my statement on, on sexuality and morality and what the Bible says. Here, here, here's what the Bible teaches in a very, very simple way. Here's how I, I explain what the Bible teaches. God has ordained sexual intimacy to be a gift 
that, a, that one man and one woman enjoy in the boundaries of marriage. Anything outside of that is sin. Let me say it again. God has given us sexual intimacy as a gift to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the boundaries of marriage, covenant marriage, and anything beyond that, which would be sex before marriage, homosexuality, um, adultery, um, pornography, uh, all these other things, they're sin. They're not right. They're sinful. Because you know why? God has spoken. But these things that God has spoken so clearly on are now in our culture being celebrated. The coolest characters on sitcoms, the most charming folks on sitcoms now are deviant when it comes to these issues. And they're being celebrated in our culture. And David sees this and we see this. We can identify with David in this passage. And so we got to be clear about what the Bible says. Hey, we gotta, we got to say things like, you know what? God created a man and a woman. Right? He made male and female. And however God made you, that's how he made you. That's what you are. It's amazing to me that we can't even say there's a... I saw a video today of a man interviewing some folks on a college campus in Seattle, uh, uh, Washington. And he asked, is there a difference between men and women? And these students couldn't even say there's a difference. Well, um, not really, they would say. Like, there's a difference. (laughs) There's a difference. Boys are boys, girls are girls, right? Lost our mind. You know why? Vileness is being celebrated. David saw it, we see it in our day. So, that's number three, the glamour of evil in a decaying society. Number four, we see the hope for the godly in a decaying society. So, this has all kind of been bad news, it's kind of been heavy, because we can identify with David's... um, you know, David's hardship, his sense of loneliness here. We, we kind of feel how he's feeling. So is there any hope? Well, this psalm gives us hope for the godly in a decaying society. So what is the hope that we have? First of all, we anticipate the Lord being stirred to action. As Christians, we anticipate the Lord being stirred to action. Look what it says uh, in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And so David's saying, because there is such rampant evil, I anticipate God moving. Because God, it's God speaking here. God says, I will now arise. And so as Christians, we believe that God's going to arise. That God, again, will not turn a, a deaf ear or a blind eye to this. That God is, going to, God is going to move and eventually, ultimately, he will set everything right. And so we believe that. And so we ask God to move. We ask God to intervene. We ask God to do something in the midst of a rapidly decaying culture. And we should be praying that prayer. God, would you rise up? Would you move? And so Christians, we have the confidence that God is going to respond, Right? That, that nothing that happens uh, is, is being ignored by an omniscient God. He is going to move. Uh, one of my favorite books is uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which comes from the Chronicles of Narnia. And I've read that book to uh, my two oldest boys, and uh, I, I just love the book. And there's a scene where the boy, the, I'm sorry, the children get to this, uh, this land called Narnia through a wardrobe, and they, they leave their land and go into a, a magical land named Narnia. And when they get there, it's winter because there's this evil 
uh, queen uh, who is in charge, and she's a, an evil tyrant, and she's ruling over the land of Narnia, and it's everywhere they look, there's ice, and it's winter, and, and the kids have this conversation uh, with a talking beaver. You just got to read the book, okay? But they have this conversation with a talking beaver, uh, Mr. Beaver, and, and he mentions it being winter, but then he says this. He says, Aslan, who is a, a picture of Christ, he's a lion, uh, he says, Aslan is on the move. Yes, it's winter. Yes, it looks bleak. Yes, things look bad. But we know Aslan is on the move, right? And we can say, yes, it is bleak. Yes, it looks bad. But we believe that Jesus Christ will rise up and he will move. And may he use his people to do it. Amen? Wouldn't it be great if he chose the church as a way to move through our culture and, and turn the tide and bring awakening to our nation and to our world. And so we can anticipate the Lord being stirred to action. Secondly, we trust that the Lord will watch over us. Look what it says in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise as the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So, so the Lord's saying, hey, David is worried and, and, and he, he needs protection, and, and the Lord's saying, I will protect him from the ungodly. So you and I can have this hope that no matter what happens, we are in the Lord's hands. He will watch over us. Uh, turn over to Psalm 91 with me. I read this recently, and it just really captured my heart. It's a beautiful psalm. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. He who makes God his shelter. He who runs to him as Savior and Lord and peace and fulfillment and purpose. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide, will remain in the shadow of the Almighty. Listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if there's been a point in time in your life when you've embraced him as your Savior and Lord by faith... The Bible teaches you are his, and you are, no matter what happens in our culture, you are dwelling under the shadow of Almighty God. That's comforting, isn't it? He is watching over you. I will say to the Lord, verse 2, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and Buckler, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now, when I was in South Asia with Jason, we almost died. You want to hear the story? We really did. And I didn't tell the story to Claire until I got home. Uh, we decided one afternoon after we did some training to go to an area, the islands, it's kind of this beachy type area. And to be honest with you, we were looking for a cold Coke. It was hot, it was humid. We just wanted to find a place where they, they have Cokes, but a lot of times they're warm. So we're looking for a cold Coke. Uh, it was really, really hot, really, really humid. And so we were in an auto rickshaw. And an auto rickshaw is basically kind of a three-wheeled motorcycle with a, with a, uh, uh, what do you, how do you, 
uh, describe it, a, a, pla- a, passenger, a place where passengers sit on the back. It's got this kind of seat on the back, covered seat to sit in, and it's called an auto rickshaw. And so we're in this auto rickshaw, and to get down from the road we're on down to the beach, there's this really curvy, steep road. And we got on the road, and we were heading down, and I noticed right away the rickshaw driver kept pushing his brakes, kind of pumping his brakes. And I said, I don't think this guy trusts his brakes. And we, we kept going and kept going. Well, we started to pick up speed. We were coming around this, this curve. I mean, I mean, it was a very steep grade. And uh, I, I knew something wasn't right because we were really picking up speed. And the guy was pumping his brakes, and then he yelled. The rickshaw driver went, oh! And I told Jason, I said, I wasn't scared. He started yelling. And so we were, we, we were coming around this curve, and he was careening out of control. He hit a big uh, concrete... Um, um, rail type thing and he hit the concrete thing and it knocked us over on a side like this and we were on our side just for a moment about to flip over and we fell back down uh, on all the wheels we came around the curve and there was a level place no cars coming we hit the level place and just came to a stop now if there wouldn't have been a level place there it would have been bad or if a car was coming as we're careening out of control it would have been would have been really bad i you know i'd maybe be in a hospital somewhere in south asia uh, or worse and 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 uh, so it took us a minute to kind of catch our breath you know uh we were like it kind of it scared the the driver we paid him extra by the way um just to, i don't know why just for we, the fact we didn't die and uh and uh and and it was a scary moment, it really was. And you know, I thought about, I was thinking about angels and, and I was thinking about Psalm 91 because I just read Psalm 91 before I left for the trip. And I was really uh, dwelling and meditating on Psalm 91 because it's just powerful about how God protects you. And uh, could it be that when we were over on our side about to tip over, could an angel have just kind of pushed us back over? I believe that, don't you? The Bible says he gives his angels charge concerning you. They're ministering spirits to minister to God's elect, the Bible says over in Hebrews. And so what, however God chose to do it, he did it, and we, we didn't die. So praise the Lord for that, right? It, it, was, a, it was a scary moment that could have gone uh, a lot worse. Now it's just a good story to tell. Um, but, but this idea of God's protection, here, here's what I want to, and you've heard me say this before, but it's so important. If you are a child of God through Jesus Christ, I want you to hear me, write this down. Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. That, that's really profound. Let me say it again. If you are a child of God, nothing, sickness, danger, disaster, any, nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. Because he's sovereign and on his throne, all right? And he keeps you in his hand. And here's the, it gets even better. If God allows it, he has a purpose for it, Right? James 1 says, count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance and character. And so God will sometimes allow hardship in your life, pain, hurt, accidents, whatever, because he wants to do something that you maybe can't even see this side of heaven. But if, if, if God allows it, he always has a good, sovereign purpose for it. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Nothing can touch our life unless God allows it. And if God allows it, he has a purpose for it. We're covered, aren't we? We're covered no matter where you turn. We are covered by the sovereign hand of God. It says it like this over in John 10. When we are in the hand of God, nothing and no one can snatch us from the hand of God. Hey, listen, if Satan could snatch you from God's hand, don't you think he already would have? Amen? 
He can't. You are in the hand of God. So nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. And if he allows it, he has a purpose for it. That's really, really good news. And I think that's what Psalm 12 is is saying. Hey, listen, I'm surrounded by the evil ones, but God has my back. God will take care of me. God will will make sure I'm okay. And if if he allows me to suffer some harm, he has a purpose, a greater purpose in it. So, So back to Psalm 12, we see we can trust that the Lord will watch over us. Oh, by the way, uh, in one of the markets we were in, they, they sold these little tiny toy auto rickshaws. So I bought one so I could make the telling of the story more dramatic. <laughs> Should have brought it. I bought it, and, bought it with Trey and Megan. And uh, so when I got back, I pulled it out. I got it for Connor, my little one. And before I get to him, I told him the story of the rickshaw. And it was, it was, it was really neat. Anyway, all right. Maybe I'll break it out on a Sunday. Okay. We rest on the, uh, we trust that the Lord will watch over us. Here's the next thing. This is, this is really one of the major points of the psalm, Psalm 12. We rest on the firm foundation of God's word. We rest on the firm foundations of God's word. So Psalm 12, he's talking about words, evil words, empty words, vain words, boastful words, irresponsible words, lying words, deceitful words. And then there's this really sharp contrast. Look what it says there in Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. How pure? It's like, the, it's like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And, and so here's what David's saying. Yes, we are surrounded by evil words, but guess what? We got God's word to stand on. So he's drawing a, contact, a contrast be, between frivolous, evil words and the faithful words of God. And so when we feel surrounded by uh, evil in our culture, guess what? We just go back to the word because this is where we get truth. Amen. This is where we get encouragement. This is where we get nourishment. This is what helps us to keep on keeping on. So we rest on the firm foundations of God's word. Now, two things about God's word. Number one, his word is pure. The illustration is silver refined in a furnace. Now, you know that when you put heat to metal, that the impurities rise to the surface. So if you take a piece of silver and you put heat to it seven times, which, by the way, is the biblical number of completion or perfection, when you do that, that silver is going to be pure. There won't be a hint of impurity in that silver. He's saying that's what God's word is like. There's not a hint of impurity in God's word. And I want you to hear your pastor say this, and I want you to hear your pastor say this often. God's word is absolutely pure. There's no error in it. There's no falsehood in it. It is complete truth from Genesis to Revelation. It is the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. So when you're confused by the culture, you're confused by all the talk and all the chatter and all the politics and all the talk shows, hey, go to the word. The Word will give you perspective. The Word will nourish you with truth. So you stand on the right stuff as the culture decays all around you, right? We have got to get back to the firm foundation of the Word of God. His Word is pure. And then His promises are sure. His promises are sure. Jeremiah 1.12, God says, hey, listen, I'm going to watch over my Word to perform it. 
So when I speak and I make a promise, I watch over that promise until it comes to fruition and fulfillment. I make sure that my promises are fulfilled. God always comes through on his word. His promises, the word of God, they are sure. So again, there's this contrast between the pure words of God and the evil words in the culture. The words in our culture are false words. The words of God are faithful words. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Man, I love Charles Spurgeon. Great Baptist preacher of the late 1800s. He says about Psalm 12, The Bible is passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery, and has lost nothing but those human interpretations which clung to it as alloy to precious ore. The experience of the saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not a single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. Here's what he's saying. The Bible has withstood great attacks through the years, and not one word of, of the Bible has been proven untrue. Nothing. The, the, the brightest minds of academia, science, liter, uh, 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 literature, they have, they have sought to prove or disprove the Bible. And no one has disproved any of the word of God. As a matter of fact, the more we learn, the more it just all just continues to line up with the veracity of Scripture. And, but Spurgeon says, not only has the Bible with, listen to this, not only has the Bible withstood the attacks of a secular culture, the Bible has proved itself in the Christian's life. Think about your Christian experience. Has God not come through on any of the promises of his word? Has his word ever let you down? No. If you will think about your walk with God, the, the, the Bible has proven itself to be pure, proven itself to be faithful, faithful words from a faithful God. So the, the, we rest on the firm foundation of God's word. Here's the last thing we'll be through. The hope for the godly and the decaying society. We anticipate the Lord being stirred to action. We trust that the Lord will watch over us. We rest on the firm foundation of God's word. But last, we know that ultimately God wins. Look in verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Nothing can touch you unless you allow it. On every side of the wicked prowls, violence is exalted among the children of man. So God, you're, gonna, you're going to move. You're going to keep your people. You will guard us from the decaying culture. We know that ultimately God wins. I love this quote from Michael Wilcock. He writes, Both words of truth and words of guile, deceit, are ever-present realities in our culture today. The true words of Psalm 12 have nonetheless made another point. The wicked say, we will triumph in verse 4, but that is their kind of word and they won't. The Lord says, I will arise in verse 5, and that is his kind of word and he will. He will, in fact, have the last word. Who will have the last word? God will have the last word. When it all is said and done, when the dust settles on human history, God will have the final say. And hey, when that time comes, I want to be on the right side, don't you? And if you want to be on the right side, if you want to have a personal relationship with God, knowing that you're His, that, that, that you're in His hand, that only happens through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you will run to Jesus and make him your Lord and Savior, embrace him by faith, trust that what he did for you by dying on the cross and rising from the dead is your only hope to have your sin forgiven, 
and have eternal life, if you trust in what Christ has done for you, call on Him to be your Lord, He'll save you, you'll be born again, and you'll be in the hands of God. And nothing and no one can snatch you out of God's hands. And when the dust settles in human history, you will be on the right side. I'm telling you, listen to me, I'm telling you when it's all said and done, all that's going to matter is what people did with Jesus here in this life. All that's going to matter. And so, we know that God ultimately wins. So we can identify with David, can't we? So we look around the decaying society, but we have not, just like David, we have not lost our hope. Amen? Amen.